0: This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. This evening, we are very pleased to have Dar Jamal with us. He is the author of Beyond the Green Zone, Dispatches from an Embedded Journalist in Iraq. Dar Jamal is an independent journalist who has written for any number of news outlets, including The Nation, Sunday Herald, The Guardian, and The Independent. His dispatches and hard news stories have been translated into several languages, French, Polish, German, Dutch, Spanish, Japanese, and several others. On radio as well as television, Dar reports for Democracy Now!, the BBC, and numerous other stations around the globe. He is one of only a few independent US journalists in Iraq, and we are very pleased to have him with us this evening. Please join me in welcoming Dar Jamal. Thanks everyone for coming out tonight. Uh, The former CENTCOM Commander General John Abizade, speaking at Stanford University uh, roughly a couple of weeks ago, Uh, concerning the Iraq War, said, quote, of course it's about oil, we can't really deny that. He then went on to say, we've treated the Arab world as a collection of big gas stations. Our message to them is, guys, keep your pumps open, prices low, be nice to the Israelis, and you can do whatever you want out back. This followed something that former Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan wrote, about a month uh, prior to that quote the Iraq war is largely about oil. And we, we hear this now. We have a string of retiring generals that have uh, been tied into the Iraq invasion and occupation uh, that come out after retirement and are very critical of of the policy of how the war was run, how the occupation is being run uh, and things like Abizade just said Yet, for those of us who were reading uh, uh, what the U.N. weapons inspectors were turning up during the build-up to the invasion, uh, reading foreign media about what was being done to uh, justify the invasion of Iraq, comparing that to how it was being reported back here in the U.S. and in uh, the U.K., it was as though we were watching a totally separate situation. The, the disparity was stark. And I'd like to run through a, a few of the examples that most of you probably read about yourself uh, to refresh everyone's memories. And, and comparing this to the comments that I just opened with. On September 6, 2002, the former White House Chief of Staff, Andrew Card, when speaking about the PR campaign for the Iraq War, said, quote, from a marketing point of view, you don't introduce new products in August. And when he said that, I didn't see very much criticism in the mainstream media. I I didn't see journalists coming after him and being critical of, Mr. Card, why are you talking about PR campaigns and war in the same sentence? Uh, I, I really didn't see that much fuss raised about him making that comment. But him making that comment on that date was very instructive. And uh, it, it wasn't, there wasn't even an attempt to hide the fact of that, it, that was exactly what the White House was doing, was launching a PR campaign for the selling of the invasion of Iraq to the American people. Because it was the very next day after Card said that, on September 7, 2002, George Bush and Tony Blair stood together at Camp David and declared that they had evidence from a report published by the UN International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, that showed that Iraq was six months away from building nuclear weapons. The problem with that one was no such IAEA report ever existed, but we all know that now. And we knew it then. But the mainstream journalists, again, where, where was the reportage on that? Where were the investigations? Where was the criticism? Where, where was the digging? Uh, asking for the evidence, for starters, would have been a, a, a pretty good thing to expect from journalists in, um, inside the institution of the mainstream media. But uh, with very, very few exceptions, uh, it basically just didn't happen. Instead, the very next day, on September 8, 2002, as part of that PR campaign, the New York Times ran a front-page story co-authored by Judith Miller and Michael Gordon of WMD Notoriety, in which they proudly quoted one of their many anonymous Bush administration officials as saying, Iraq has stepped up its quest for nuclear weapons and has embarked on a worldwide hunt for materials to make an atomic bomb. Again, that was followed uh, immediately by a full court press in the media by various Bush administration officials. Dick Cheney was on TV citing that New York Times story as evidence that, see, even the media is all over the fact that Saddam Hussein's trying to get materials to build a nuclear weapon, even though, of course it was he had uh, links into why Judith Miller had that information in the first place. It's worth mentioning, too, that she had security clearance at the Pentagon. Interesting thing for a journalist to have. But that, those are just a couple of small examples of what we all know and went through and witnessed firsthand of this onslaught, this media onslaught of the media allowing itself to be used. And instead of working as journalists and asking the tough questions and Uh, digging for evidence from the administration about these claims, particularly in regard to the fact that it was about whether or not a war was going to be launched or not. What bigger thing, what more important situation to really roll up your sleeves as a journalist and, and ask the tough questions. But that didn't happen. And instead, for the most part, we had a string of New York Times stories similar to that one and other major publications followed suit and certainly the television networks did even more so. And I would argue that the coverage of the invasion was even worse. It more resembled a weapons manufacturing manufacturing show or a video game than what war really looks, tastes, feels and smells like. And I would argue that the coverage of the occupation uh, was just as despicable and continues today to lag years behind the actual reality on the ground, and how how catastrophic it has become. So, what what I'd like to do tonight is uh, discuss some examples of the disparity of the reportage that I saw uh, firsthand, comparing firsthand experiences in Iraq to how they were reported back here. Uh, the first situation I'd like to discuss occurred. At the very end of November 2003, it was just days after I first arrived into Iraq on my first trip there. And it occurred in Samarra, a city about 100 miles north of Baghdad. And on November 29th, the U.S. military announced that one of their patrols in central Samarra came under attack by a huge contingent of Saddam Fedayeen. 150 Fedayeen, according to the military, attacked this patrol. So the Saddam Fedayeen, for those who don't know, are basic, were basically Saddam Hussein's uh, special forces or his shock troops. And to that claim, uh, when I first saw that, when the military announced that, it, it smelled, uh, primarily because there had never once been an instance to that point or ever after in the occupation that any organized, uniformed contingent of Saddam's Previous military uh, did anything like that to the U.S. military or anybody else, and it seemed odd. And, and then it seemed uh, even more odd when the military announced that they killed 48 of those fedayeen. And then overnight, for somehow uh, no reason was given by the military. But then the next day, they reported that 54. It wasn't 48. It was 54 fedayeen who were killed. And so it, it started to smell even worse. So, a couple of friends and I and an interpreter decided to uh, get a car and head up to Samar and look into this. And we got up there, and we went to, for example, the hospital. Because it seemed like, well, if there's a dispute in the number of people killed and who exactly they were, uh, it seems like the morgue would probably be a good place to to investigate. So we went there, and we found eight bodies of civilians. Uh, Two of them were Iranians because the Shrine of Al otherwise known as the Golden Mosque, the Golden Dome, is in Samarra. Uh, that's the one that was exploded on February 22nd, 06. And so it's a very important religious site for Shia pilgrims uh, and particularly from Iran and so it's always been a regular thing for Iranians to come in and visit that shrine since the occupation began and they were able to come into Iraq. And So two of uh, the dead were Iranian pilgrims, and the other six were uh, civilian residents of Samara City. And we interviewed doctors at the hospital and wounded people that were there in their beds who were at the scene where the incident had taken place. And many of them had gunshot wounds or shrapnel wounds. And everybody was saying the same thing. And that was that, yes, a US patrol was in downtown Samara, and they came under attack by a small group of resistance fighters maybe two or three two two three or four uh... the numbers varied between two and four uh... they launched the attack uh... hit the americans with a rocket propelled grenade and a little bit of machine gun fire and then they fled as is pretty much standard operating procedure for the iraqi resistance and then the patrol responded by uh... shooting up downtown samara shooting anything that moved uh... and killing the eight people the bodies of which were in the hospital and then wounding many many others it was at least a dozen others that were wounded and so we decided from the hospital then to go speak with one of uh, the tribal sheikhs of the area one of the larger sheikhs, and he basically said the same thing he said look we're I've grown up here, I've spent my whole life here, and uh, everyone here knows what happens in the city. And there were no Fedayeen. Uh, if the military claims there were 54 bodies of Fedayeen killed, show. let's see them. Where did they go? Did they, did they fly away? Did the Americans take them away in their tanks? There's no Fedayeen bodies here. Um, and, and so we decided from there, he suggested to go down to the scene of the incident. We were all going, We were already going to go anyway. And so we went down to downtown Samar to interview people. There were eyewitnesses there still uh, looking around at the cars that were shot up and, and there at the scene talking with each other. And an interesting thing happened when we showed up there because already there had been some reporters from the mainstream media who had come. Uh, BBC had come, and uh, people uh, said that NBC, I believe, if I remember correctly, had been there. And interviewed them on camera, took their quotes, and then went back to Baghdad and instead of broadcasting uh, what the people said, they they broadcast basically the, the military side of the story again and so people were very, very upset when we arrived, and that's the context of uh, what I'd like to read you from my book. We were surrounded by throngs of nervous and very angry Samar residents when we revisited the scene of the attack after taking our tea. A rusty old taxi driving by slowed and a man yelled at us out the window. All the media is not telling the truth. They're lying, all of them. Don't talk to them. I did so many interviews with the media and nobody is telling my truth. Nobody has reported what I told them. Why should you even talk to them? They're lying all the time so don't talk to them. I stood near a building riddled with bullets and spoke with people who crowded around, anxiously waiting to tell their story. Shell casings littered the ground near the wall of a home. A man in his early 40s exclaimed with his hands in the air, If the Americans can shoot every child walking in the street, it means the end of this planet. In just one week, I had already become familiar with a hands-in-air gesture made by frustrated and shocked Iraqis. To me, it signified the despair that was spreading across the country, a plea to anything or anyone who would listen. Another man showed me a parked car scarred with 112 bullets. He told of a U.S. soldier who had gone crazy and fired his weapon everywhere, even up at the sky at electrical wires running above the street. Two of the wires had been shot through and were crudely spliced back together. "'They shot a lot of bullets to cut these wires,' he said. The American soldier was laughing and shooting the wires. "'Are they fedain wires?' Were the wires attacking the Americans? He was laughing like a crazy man. Another man approached me with the two children of his brother, killed by U.S. gunfire by his side. This little boy and girl, their father was shot by the Americans. Who will take care of this family? Who will watch over these children? Who will feed them now? Who? Why did they kill my brother? What is the reason? Nobody told me. He was a truck driver. What is his crime? Why did they shoot him? They shot him with 150 bullets. Did they kill him just because they wanted to shoot a man? That's it. This is the reason. Why didn't anyone talk to me and tell me why they have killed my brother? Is killing people a normal thing now? Happening every day? This is our future? This is the future that the United States promised Iraq? That scene also highlights what I saw over the eight months that I reported from inside of Iraq over four different trips that scene highlights uh, what I saw repeatedly anytime I went to the scene of an attack on a U.S. patrol, and oftentimes things that happened at checkpoints, which was uh, a very, very high level of killing of, of civilians anytime soldiers were attacked or felt they might be attacked. And coming back home uh, and speaking with Iraq veterans, some still active duty. Uh, most of them said the same thing and that's that uh, they basically were afraid, they were tired of getting attacked and not knowing who did it, usually by roadside bombs, so it became kind of an unwritten policy that anytime they were attacked they would open up on whatever was nearby, even if it was an empty house or if it was a car with people in it, it didn't matter, that was the level of frustration and I'll come back to that a little bit later. But this is one of the reasons, along with death squads, intersectarian violence, militias, uh, waterborne disease, that the number of dead in Iraq, according to the study carried out by Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health, in conjunction with Iraqi doctors from Mustansariya University in Baghdad, uh, they did the legwork for the, the scientific study during July of '05, and then it was published in the peer-reviewed British medical journal known as The Lancet in October of 2006 and that study found that 655,000 Iraqis or 2.5 percent of the total population of the country had been killed as a direct result of the invasion and occupation. There's a group called Just Foreign Policy that has based their number on the Lancet report, and then from that extrapolated from media reports from the date that study was carried out to now, and they estimate that that number is now over one million. I'd like to talk a little bit now about the infrastructure situation in Iraq, uh, starting with Halliburton. one thing that I was seeing very early on in my first tour in Iraq, this was just then in December 2003 that already there was uh, a, a notable drop in the level of available electricity in homes that uh, uh, it was already down to about between six and eight hours per 24 hours in Baghdad. and. Along with that, there was already a gasoline shortage, which had Iraqis very frustrated because that was a new thing for them. Uh, they had plenty of problems during the sanctions and plenty of problems because of Saddam Hussein, but one thing they didn't have to worry about was gasoline shortages. and so. What happened was there was problems with deliveries. There, it wasn't getting to where it was supposed to go. Gas stations would run out of gas oftentimes, and so there were long lines of cars waiting to get gasoline at gas stations all around Baghdad as far back as December 2003. Um, already at that point, people were waiting hours and hours and hours to, to get gasoline, and what's happening today is even much, much worse. But it's important to note that it was going on from nearly the very beginning. And uh, that's the context uh, for this next bit that I'd like to, to read you about the infrastructure. Walking back to our hotel, we passed a small, decrepit petrol station with two lines of cars, stretching as far as we could see, waiting for gas. There was a separate line for black marketers, who were lined up with their jerry cans and plastic jugs, awaiting their chance. The black market was burgeoning. Those who could afford the extra costs were less willing to wait in the ever-lengthening lines as the gas crisis worsened. The black marketers took their plastic jugs to the petrol stations, filled them, walked down the street a few meters, and used siphons and plastic funnels to pour gas into the empty tanks of those able to pay a little bit extra. Everyone from small children to elderly men on crutches were doing this. Meanwhile, short-tempered Iraqis were jamming their cars toward the pumps, some having slept overnight in their cars in order to keep their place in line. And the Americans try to tell us this war was not about our oil, yelled a man while pushing his car. He agreed to talk with us as long as we stayed out of his way. Even under that bastard Saddam, we never had benzene shortages. I'd seen these lines all over Baghdad. Gas lines were so thick in some areas that traffic would often get choked down to a single lane, further aggravating the already impossible chaos of Baghdad's auto congestion. Some of the men we spoke with in the fuel line were aware of the fact that Halliburton subsidiary, KBR, had just been caught by the Pentagon for grossly overcharging them by importing gasoline into Iraq from Kuwait at $2.65 per gallon. Iraqi concerns were able to do the job for just under $1 per gallon. Halliburton, which had Dick Cheney as its chairman and CEO from 1999 to 2000 before he relinquished his position in order to become vice president of the United States, was unabashedly looting the Pentagon. By this time, Cheney's old company, which he still had and has financial ties with, had obtained billions of dollars of contracts in Iraq. No one knows exactly how much money has been contracted in total, but as of the time of this writing, Halliburton's overall contracts for log cap and oil infrastructure rebuilding have totaled approximately $20 billion in Iraq. Total expenditures on U.S. corporations operating in Iraq on reconstruction and other services is over $50 billion. LOGCAP is a logistic civil augmentation program with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which is Halliburton's largest government contract. Under this contract, Halliburton is responsible for providing supplies and services to the military on a global basis. Services include construction of military housing for troops, transporting food and supplies to bases, and serving food. And I should add, before I read this next bit, that the Department of Defense admits to 735 bases around the world. Former CIA analyst Chalmers Johnson believes that we could probably add another 300 secret bases on that. So Halliburton has the contract for supply and services of all of these bases globally. It's worth noting that it was Dick Cheney as defense secretary in 1992 who spearheaded the movement to privatize most of the military's civil logistics activities. Under Cheney's direction, nine million dollars was paid by the Pentagon to KBR to conduct a study to determine whether private companies like KBR should handle all the military's civil logistics. KBR's classified study conveniently concluded that greater privatization of logistics was in the government's best interest. Surprise. Shortly thereafter, on August 3, 1992, Secretary Cheney awarded the first comprehensive log cap contract to KBR. The Washington Post reported, quote, The Pentagon chose KBR to carry out the study and subsequently selected the company to implement its own plan. Three years later, Cheney became CEO of Halliburton. It's also worth noting, for those who might have missed it, that when uh, Mr. Bush began his presidential campaign and was uh, trying to figure out who the best running mate might be, that a a committee was going to be formed in order to select who the vice presidential running mate would be. And Dick Cheney volunteered. "I I can run that committee. And then he chose himself. An update on this. Former Halliburton subsidiary, Kellogg Brown and Root, uh, where Dick Cheney was CEO literally until the day before he became vice president, literally the day before, has received so far contracts in Iraq totaling well over $20 billion. A Pentagon audit of $16.2 billion worth of KBR's work, quote, found that $3.2 billion in KBR billing was either questionable or unsupported by documentation. Another thing I want to add to that is, um, there's. is I'm often asked how long do I think the U.S. is going to be there, uh, when is there going to be a withdrawal, etc., and I just want to just point out, because this is tied in with Halliburton, many of you have probably heard of this so-called U.S. Embassy being built right in the middle of the Green Zone in Baghdad. It's the only reconstruction project that, that uh, has come off on time in Iraq. It was uh, mostly completed by this September, and the, the annual operating budget of this embassy is a billion dollars. It's the, si- the size of it, it's two-thirds the area of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Another size comparison for those who've been there, it's the size of the Vatican City. Twenty-one buildings, walls reinforced two and a half times their normal standards. It has its own electrical system, its own water treatment plant, uh, of course its own guard base, uh, surface-to-air missile batteries, uh, helicopter landing ports, a vehicle maintenance garage, a school for the quote-unquote thousand government employees that will be working there for their kids. Uh, The largest swimming pool in the country, first-run movie theater, shopping center, yoga studio, you get the picture. Um, Comparable to that, the bases, there's, uh, it, right now it looks as though there's going to be six, between 6 and 12 uh, permanent bases in Iraq. Of course, they're never going to be called permanent, but never ha- uh, neither have the bases in Japan or Germany or South Korea. Um, these bases are comparable in infrastructure to uh, what I just told you about the embassy. And right now, as we speak, um, most of the runways in the big air bases like Balad Air Base, which is known as Camp Anaconda, they're all being uh, extended and uh, more fortifications being built for these bases. At Camp Anaconda alone, for example, there's 20,000 troops stationed there, less than 1,000 of whom ever leave the base. Um, that air base alone has 250 of its own aircraft. And so on any given day, there's F-16s, F-18s, unmanned surveillance drones with Hellfire missiles, uh, C-130s, uh, unmarked CIA planes, uh, any, just about any kind of military-related aircraft you can think of is there. One Air Force official there boasted, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, he said it was one of the busiest airports in the world uh, behind the likes of Chicago O'Hare. The other aspect of the infrastructure I'd like to talk about is the water situation. It's been very, very critical from the beginning. And, and again, when we talk about infrastructure, we have to remember that Iraq came out of a period in, into this war of 12 and a half years of the harshest economic sanctions in modern times, uh, where their infrastructure was literally eviscerated. And the... The water situation specifically was under Be- San Francisco-based Bechtel uh, International Corporation's responsibility to uh, rebuild the water infrastructure, specifically water treatment plants. Uh, infamously, now it, we, we most of us remember what Madeleine Albright under Clinton said to Leslie Stahl when asked if she thought the price of half a million dead Iraqi children under the sanctions was worth it, and she said yes, we think the price is worth it. A lot of a lot of the reason that that number was what it was but was because of uh, waterborne diseases and the lack of medicines in Iraq. And so it was imperative for Bechtel, or whichever company got the contract, and it was Bechtel, to rebuild that water infrastructure as quickly and as, as well as possible. But I got hired by a company to do a report on the status of Bechtel's progress of reconstructing the water infrastructure. So I got a copy of their initial contract. Their initial contract was worth $680 million, signed behind closed doors, a cost plus no-bid fixed fee contract. Um, Basically what that means is with those kinds of contracts, which most of the bigger Western corporations with ties to the administration that got these contracts, Uh, It basically, the way they're set up is that you're guaranteed a profit, and that profit basically is tied to how much money you spend in a rock. So the more money you have to spend to get the job done, the more you're guaranteed a profit. So it's pretty much a a good design for corruption. But the water situation, I was was hard-pressed in their contract to find specific locations with specific completion dates or even projected completion dates but I did find three and they were the water treatment plants in Hilla Najaf and Diwaniya all cities south of Baghdad. So in January 2004 a photographer and I got an interpreter and headed down there to go to these plants and interview the engineer the head engineer or either the um, assistant engineer at each of these, these water treatment plants. And so that's the context for this next bit that I'd like to read you. The Water Treatment Plant and Distribution Center in Hilla were managed by Salmam Hassan Kadil, who was also the chief engineer of the plant. Kadil informed me that he had received help from UNICEF, the International Committee for the Red Cross, and several other groups who assisted in some minor reconstruction projects and emergency water deliveries. He said that even during the war there had been running water in every house, And that the normal problems of needing to replace old pipes and pumps, people had been managing well. At the time of our visit, however, they were supplying only half the water required by the people inside the city of Hilla. The villages had no water at all. The worst thing was that the plant did not have the pipes and equipment that they needed to restore the water supply. There had been no contact either with Bechtel or with any of its subcontractors. I found that vast numbers of people in the area were suffering from cholera, diarrhea, nausea, and kidney stones. I asked Cottle what he knew of the presence of Bechtel in Iraq and in his city. Quote, Bechtel is painting buildings but this doesn't give clean water to the people who have died from drinking contaminated water. We asked them that instead of painting buildings they give us one water pump and we'll use it to give water service to more people. We have had no change since the Americans came here. In a village just outside of Hilla, several men told a similar story. There was no running water to speak of, and barely two to four hours of electricity per day, during which they tried to run their feeble pumps to draw contaminated water from a polluted stream for their families to use. An old man named Hussein Hamza Najam bemoaned, We are all sick with stomach problems and kidney stones. Our crops are dying. Later that afternoon, at another small village between Hilla and Najaf, We found that 1,500 people had no other source of drinking water than the dirty stream that trickled by their homes. Most people in the village suffered from dysentery, many had developed kidney stones, and a huge number had cholera. After spending a night in Najaf, we visited yet another village on the outskirts of the city. Here the people had taken an initiative and collected funds from each house in order to install new pipes. But in the absence of regular electricity and water from the Najaf Center, their initiative could bear no fruit. The villagers had dug a large hole in the ground where they tapped into already existing pipes to siphon water. At night, when there was a supply of electricity, water from the tap pipes collected in the dirt hole. The morning of our visit, we watched the operation. Children stood around as women collected what little bit of dirty water remained in the bottom of the hole. Here, too, waterborne diseases such as dysentery and cholera plus nausea, diarrhea, and kidney stones were widespread. Women had to walk half a mile down to a stream to collect water for their homes. In the same stream, other women had to do their water-related chores like dishes and laundry. Eight children from the village had been killed when attempting to cross the busy highway on their way to a nearby factory in order to retrieve clean water. Some children had even drowned in this stream while collecting water. To update that situation, according to an Oxfam International report that was released this last July 30th, 70% of Iraqis now do not have access to clean drinking water. Bechtel earned $2.3 billion from their Iraq contracts before withdrawing completely from the country in November 2006. The Oxfam report also highlighted the fact that nearly half of all Iraqis are now living in abject poverty, living on less than one dollar per day. Child malnutrition has increased nine percent since the invasion occurred in March 2003. That is an increase over the period of the sanctions when, as I mentioned, over half a million children died from malnutrition and disease. Also, according to that Oxfam report, uh, four million Iraqis are in dire need of emergency assistance On top of needing water, they need food and access to medical care. And they're at severe risk for their lives if they don't get those needs met. And uh, at least another 4.5 million Iraqis are refugees, roughly half inside the country and roughly half that number having fled mostly to Syria and Jordan. The last bit that I'd like to to uh, close with uh, has to do with an interview that I did with a senior political scientist at Baghdad University and uh, a very, very astute professor and uh, this, this interview took place around the time of, uh, it was in April of 2004, but a little context uh, for, for this was in March, long before the, the siege of Fallujah started in April, uh, in March the Brimmer, uh, Paul Brimmer, the head of the coalition provisional authority, had decided to start going after uh, Muqtad al-Sadr, the Shia cleric who's been very anti-occupation all the way through the occupation. And he started by accusing Sadr of killing someone, uh, an accusation which Sadr had already actually been tried and found innocent for, and and then followed that up rather quickly by closing Muqtad al-Sadr's newspaper, the Al-Hausa, and so that, coupled with many military attacks on um, uh, Muqdad al-Sadr's militia and the people in areas where he had broad support, uh, caused him to launch an intifada, an uprising against the occupation forces. So once that happened, there was fighting all across southern Iraq and all across many areas of Baghdad where, where Sadr had broad support. Uh, and then not long after that, the siege of Fallujah kicked off on April 4, 2004, and there was uh, widespread fighting then uh, from with Sunnis, obviously in Fallujah, and then in many other parts. Excuse me, of Baghdad and other parts around Iraq, to the, to the east and west, even of Fallujah. So it was it was a curious time because, uh, in my opinion, it was the closest point of the entire occupation to date that. Uh, we had something resembling real unity between a, a very, very large percentage of the Shia population of Iraq and, and most of the Sunni in, in fighting against the occupation. Uh, I, in, When I went into Fallujah during the April siege, I saw evidence of the Mahdi army, Muqtada al-Sadr's militiamen, bringing supplies, aid, weapons, sometimes even fighters into Fallujah. And then later on during Muqtada al-Sadr's second intifada, I saw there was... Uh, uh, evidence that uh, Mujahideen from Fallujah had gone down to Najaf, uh, the Institute for War and Peace Reporting reported that they had taken truckloads uh, of weapons and bomb-making materials down there to support the Mahdi army down there. So obviously, uh, quite uh, strong evidence of unity. And at the same time, we had all of this talk and, and um, politicians, both in Iraq and back here, talking about, well, there's the you know, we're worried about the potential for, for civil war, et cetera. And at times, it just got really confusing in Iraq. It's an extremely complex situation, changing so rapidly at any given time. Uh, new alliances being made, old ones being broken and remade. It, so at times, it got quite challenging to keep up with. And any time uh, I felt like I wanted to go get uh, a clear perspective on what was going on, one of the people that I would like to interview was this political scientist. And so that's the context of when me and my main interpreter, whose name was Harb, uh, went to go interview him. One day, as we neared the end of April, Harb drove me to the other side of his neighborhood of Adamiya in Baghdad. The setting sun was bathing the nearby groves of date palms in a dark orange when we pulled in front of the old but elegant home of Dr. Wamid Omar Nathmi on the banks of the Tigris River directly across from the sprawling green zone. We were escorted into a sitting room by one of his sons before Dr. Nathmi entered. The old stately professor greeted us formally, then immediately lit a cigarette and engaged Harb in some small talk in Arabic before getting to my questions. An outspoken critic of the former regime, Dr. Nathmi was truly a nationalist and had always worked for the Iraqi people, rather than any particular sect or political party. It quickly became apparent to me that he had no qualms about criticizing U.S. policy. Quote, Once you abide by the policy of the USA, you are not a terrorist anymore. In 1991, Syria was not a terrorist because they supported the war against Iraq. Syria opposed the recent invasion, so now they are a terrorist state, he explained. When I asked what he thought about the Bush administration's claim that Iraq was the front line of the so-called war on terror, he replied, "Here." one would have to distinguish between terrorism and resistance. Terror was unseen here before the invasion. In Fallujah, it is not terrorism, it is resistance. We spoke of US policy throughout the Middle East. When I asked the professor about Palestine, he said, the crimes against humanity in Palestine are shown daily on the television. This does not indicate that the current US administration is committed to democracy or human rights. How can the United States, a war criminal in palestine be accepted as a state builder in iraq. We had a lengthy discussion on the reality in iraq where more and more iraqis had long since woken up to the fact that the true us agenda was not for the liberation for their liberation or benefit but for the oil and its own geostrategic military position. The americans war against iraq is over he told me. Now we have the war of iraq against america. It is a war of iraqis fighting for their country, their homes, their money, and their lives. Thank you.